Well, good morning to you. Good to see you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to the book of Nehemiah. If it takes you a second to find it, that's fine. Uh, Nehemiah, back in the Old Testament. You turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, We'll read just the first three verses today, Nehemiah 1, verses 1 to 3. I'm starting a uh, sermon series today on Nehemiah. Uh, We'll typically read much larger chunks than than this, but I do want to kind of set up the series today, do a bit of an overview here, do some background work uh, for this book, just to kind of set us up uh, for the weeks to come. So we'll just cover the first three verses today, kind of use this as a springboard into the rest of our series here on, on Nehemiah. Let's, let's pray before we read. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who does hold on, that you are faithful at all times, that you do never let go to your people who are trusting in Christ. You constantly watch over us. You constantly lead us. You constantly direct us. You are, you are faithful to us. And we thank you for that, Father. Uh, we would just acknowledge that uh, we are sinners. There's, uh, there, there's nothing in and of ourselves by which we could merit your grace or merit your faithfulness. Father, it's all because of your goodness, because of um, your character, your nature, that you hold on to your people in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the word you've given us that uh, teaches us who you are, leads us to you, leads us to Christ. Uh, Father, we just ask as we open up the book of Nehemiah now that, Lord, you would use this part of your word uh, to, to mold us, to shape us. Father, I ask that you would, you would work through your word to give us faith. You work through your word to enlighten our hearts so we might know more about you and follow you. Lord, help us as we go now into this book of Nehemiah. I just commit this to you, Lord God. Who is sufficient for these things to take a, a book of the Bible and to open them up in a way that would be accurate? Lord, we, we just need your help uh, here this morning and in the coming weeks. And I just trust, Father, that you will help me. And trust, Father, that you will, you will help us for your glory for our good. We thank you for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Amen. Leslie Flynn tells a story in the book titled, Man Ruined and Restored. And the story goes like this, quote, 
A preacher made the mistake one Saturday afternoon of showing two boys the Bible story he was planning to preach on Sunday morning. And when he turned his back, the boys glued the pages together in his Bible. The next morning, as he began to preach, he read at the bottom of one page, and Noah, when he was 120 years old, took unto himself a wife who was, and turning the page... 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high, built of gopher wood and pitch within and without. And puzzled, he paused and went back and read it again, and he then paused a second time, and he looked up at his congregation, and he said, Beloved, I've read through the Bible many times, and yet... That is the first time I have ever read that. Yet, I believe the Bible to be true from cover to cover, so I accept as true that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. End quote. And for a lot of people who read the Bible, Nehemiah is a place where the pages are often still kind of stuck Together, you, you may have read your Bible for years, but you've never really cracked into Nehemiah. The gold on the edge of the pages right there is still pretty pristine, never touched by human hands. Or, or, or maybe you've actually read Nehemiah, but you just haven't gotten much out of it. It just seems like a bunch of dusty historical facts to you, no, no real relevance to you. you. You just don't get it. And the pages of Nehemiah may, may not still be sealed to you, but the meaning or the significance of Nehemiah is still definitely sealed to you. Nehemiah just doesn't seem that important. And yet, the book of Nehemiah is incredibly important. In in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And man, that includes this little book of Nehemiah, a a, a God-breathed book here and very profitable. And many people have come to love the book of Nehemiah. I was actually kind of surprised to find this quote by J.I. Packer about Nehemiah. He says this, he says, I like Nehemiah and I hope when I get to heaven I shall be able to meet him and tell him so. What I would like him to know is that during the half century that I have been a Christian, he has helped me enormously, more perhaps than any other Bible character apart from the Lord Jesus himself. And as we kind of springboard here into this series on the book of Nehemiah, I'd just like to do three things today. One, I'm going to give you a little background for this book. Two, we'll just look at these opening verses here, the the first couple verses. And three, I'm going to finish this morning by sharing with you what I hope we all get out of 
this study on Nehemiah. So let's think first here for a minute about the background for this book, the the historical context, what was happening in history leading up to the events in this book. Whenever you study a book of the Bible, the historical context is critical for your understanding of that biblical book. When I was in seminary, they used to say, context is king. Uh, Not really because Jesus is king, but context is very, very important. The context is kind of like the backdrop for a play, the, the set or the setting for a play. That backdrop helps you to understand the play itself a little bit better. So let's think here about the backdrop for the book of Nehemiah. Way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, at the start of the Old Testament books, God called one man, Abraham, to follow him. And God promised Abraham all kinds of great stuff. God promised Abraham he would bless him, give him lots of descendants, plant those descendants in the land, and, and on and on. And, and God, um, from that point on in the book of Genesis, began to do those things for Abraham and his descendants. Abraham's family ultimately grew into this great nation called Israel. They were eventually planted in the promised land in, in Canaan. And, and about a thousand years or so after God made those initial promises to Abraham, the nation of Israel reached its zenith in the Old Testament books. Its high point in the Old Testament books under three kings. King Saul, King David and King Solomon. That was the time in the Old Testament when when Israel was the biggest and and, and the strongest. The the, the flag in Israel flew the proudest at that time. But but that last king there, King Solomon, he, he compromised so badly in his walk with God that God eventually stripped most of the kingdom from him. The country then became divided with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Jewish people in those days rebelled against God in some major ways, serious idolatry, disobedience for years in both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And even though God warned the people repeatedly in the Old Testament prophetic books, warning both Israel and Judah to turn from their sins, turn back to God, even though God sent multiple prophets to them, warning them they did not listen. And so God's judgment finally came upon His people. In 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel in the north, and in 586 BC, the Babylonians, under King Nebuchadnezzar, invaded Judah in the south. The Babylonians, when they invaded Judah in the south, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They leveled the city walls of Jerusalem. They they burned the city to the ground, killing countless Jews and dragging many others into exile. The women and children chained to wagons and the men forced to walk the some 900 miles or so to, to, to Babylon. And the Jews were now living 
in exile. People like Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Ezekiel, and Nehemiah in exile in Babylon. And at this point in time, it looked like the nation of Israel was as good as dead. Many of the people had been killed, the others living in exile. Nothing left of that great city, Jerusalem, except for dust and ashes. Rubble. But God is a faithful God. And in those times when His people are unfaithful to Him, God remains faithful to them. And God had a plan to resurrect the people of Israel and to restore that decimated city of Jerusalem. Long before the Jews ever went into exile in Babylon, Jeremiah had prophesied that that exile would last only 70 years. And Isaiah had prophesied that after those 70 years of exile, Isaiah prophesied that God would cause a foreign king named Cyrus to send a small remnant of Jews back to Jerusalem. And that's what God did. After the Jews had been in exile in Babylon for some time, the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. Persians are now in control. And a few years later, in 538 B.C., the Bible says that God stirred up the heart of the king of Persia, a foreign king. And he then wrote a decree, King Cyrus wrote a decree that the people of Israel should return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. And you think about that. It was like a second exodus for the people of Israel. I mean, man, many years earlier, in the first exodus, the Jews had walked out of slavery in Egypt. And now here they were. They're going to walk out of exile in Babylon. It's the second exodus for the people of Israel. And there were ultimately three waves of exiles who returned to Jerusalem. The first wave returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. Shortly after Cyrus issued the decree and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And then, about 80 years after that, the second wave of exiles returned under Ezra, who worked to bring spiritual reform to the people back in Jerusalem. And this right here then, Nehemiah 1, verse 1, this right here is now 13 years after Ezra led that second wave back to Jerusalem. And this man, Nehemiah, will now lead the third and final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. 
So that is a simple, that's, a, that's the simple backdrop here for this book of Nehemiah. So let's go ahead now and look at this opening here. Look at verse 1 again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. The name Nehemiah, it means Yahweh or, or the Lord has comforted. It's a combination of two Hebrew words. Necham, which means comfort, and Yah, or the Lord. Necham, Yah, Nehemiah, the Lord has comforted. And man, it's a fantastic name for this man here in this book. Because through Nehemiah, the Lord will pour out tremendous comfort upon the people living in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says that it was now the month of Kislev, so winter, sometime between mid-November and mid-December. In the 20th year, it says, Nehemiah 2.1 says that it was the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So this was sometime around 446 B.C. It's now almost a hundred years after Cyrus initially wrote his decree for the Jews to return. And yet Nehemiah, along with a lot of other Jews, are still in exile. The Jews just finding it extremely difficult to return home and actually survive there. Verse 1 says Nehemiah here was in Susa. One of the capitals of Persia was the winter residence for the Persian kings. And and Nehemiah is there because, as we'll see later, he's actually serving the, the, the Persian king Artaxerxes. So he's there with the king, most likely, at this time in Susa. The book of Esther took place earlier in Susa. Susa is now uh, located in, in uh, uh, what would be modern day Iran. Verse 2 says a group of men had just returned to Susa from Jerusalem, so made the 900 mile trek back from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks these men for some news concerning the city of Jerusalem and the Jews who were living in Jerusalem. And the news was not good. If you look at verse 3, they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The people there in Jerusalem are in great trouble. The Hebrew word there is the word ra'ah. It is a very important word in the Old Testament. Ra'ah, it, it, it refers to evil or, or misery or a state of calamity. It is the opposite. It is the, it is the antonym of the, the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace or wholeness. The Jews back in Israel at this time were still not experiencing shalom, peace and wholeness. But the opposite of that, ra'ah, great trouble, misery, calamity, 
and shame, these, these men say. Ridicule or, or reproach that they're experiencing, probably coming from foreigners who are now living around the city of Jerusalem, just heaping abuse on these Jewish exiles who, who had returned. And to make matters much worse, these men also say that the city wall there in Jerusalem was broken down, its gates destroyed by fire. Now catch the picture here. This is now about 150 years after the Babylonians came in and absolutely obliterated the place. And even though a remnant of Jews has been living back in Jerusalem for about 90 years now, the devastation is still evident. They just cannot rebuild the city. Just picture it. The the massive stones of the city walls still laying on, on the ground in Jerusalem. The gates still burnt out, charred there in Jerusalem. And you know, to you and me, that may not seem like a big deal not to have your walls. We don't have walls around our city and we're fine. But man, uh, back in those days, the walls, those things were everything. The walls were were, were your safety, your your, your security. They they were your protection. A a city without walls was was a city in trouble. And, and, And that was Jerusalem. And Nehemiah hears Here's about this desperate situation. What does he do? Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah, Nehemiah was crushed to hear the state, the condition of the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah will soon do something about this desperate situation. He will, he will soon leave Susa and lead the third and final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And listen, Nehemiah will return to build. He will return to build Jerusalem. Nehemiah will build the walls around Jerusalem. He he will most likely rebuild some of the city itself. But most importantly, Nehemiah will build the people. He will continue the reforms that Ezra started some 13 years earlier. He will work with Ezra to continue to reform the people, to lead them gradually back to the God they had forsaken. And listen, the high point of this book, it's not the building of the walls, contrary to popular opinion. No, the high point of the book of Nehemiah, it's the worship that comes after the walls are built. The people of God once again in a safe place, worshiping God with joy. Nehemiah is a builder. A Texan once said to J.I. Packer, I like Nehemiah. He was a construction worker, like me. And Nehemiah was a construction worker. Or, like one of my kids would say, he was an instruction worker, whatever that means. Nehemiah was a builder. He built Jerusalem. Most likely built 
He, he built the walls. Most likely built some of the city itself. He even built the people. And you may not realize this, but the, the stuff that Nehemiah does here, the, the events in this book, these are the last historical events in the Old Testament. This is the last historical book. After these events here, there will be 400 years of virtual silence. Nothing recorded in the Bible of any activity going on in that area. The 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. And the next major event we see in the Bible after Nehemiah is the birth of Christ. Nehemiah rebuilds the city. The people worship. 400 years of silence. And Christ is here. So that's the opening of this book. And what I want to do for our remaining time is just share with you what I hope we get out of this study on Nehemiah. You know, I've prayed a bunch for our journey through Nehemiah. And man, I have two big prayers for this series. Number one, here, here's my first prayer for this series. My, my primary prayer for this series, I pray that we see Christ in this book. You know, when you read through the book of Nehemiah, you will never read the name of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, will not be born as a baby for another 400 years. You will not see the name of Jesus anywhere in this book. And yet this entire book here, it is all ultimately about Christ. This book points to Christ. This book teaches about Christ. This entire book here ultimately foreshadows and leads up to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Every book in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. This this entire book right here, you know, this book right here, it, it is filled with tons of little stories, And tons of little heroes, people like Abraham and and Moses and, and David. And yet, this entire book ultimately tells us one big story about one big hero, the Lord Jesus. This book, the entire book, is the gospel. This is the good news story about Jesus from cover to cover. Even the Old Testament books. The first 39 books in the Bible written long before Christ was ever born. Even those books are all ultimately about Christ. You know how we know that? Because Jesus says they are. We looked at it when I preached through the book of Luke. Right at the end of Luke. After Jesus had risen from the dead... He appeared to two disciples. They were walking on this road to Emmaus. The two disciples didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up with them. They were still depressed about his death, still thinking Jesus was was dead in, in the tomb. 
And Jesus struck up a conversation with them. <laughs> and look at what Jesus says and does here. This is Luke 24, 25, if you throw that on the screen. And Jesus said to these two disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just leave that up for a second. That right there is a reference to the Old Testament books. Luke says there that Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets, which means that Jesus began with the Old Testament law books and the Old Testament prophetic books. Jesus began with those books. And Luke says then that Jesus interpreted to these men in all the Scriptures... Or in all of the Old Testament books, the things concerning himself. The Old Testament books, they teach us about Jesus. The Old Testament books teach us about a Jesus who was still to come. They teach us about Jesus. A little bit later in the same chapter in Luke, Jesus then appeared to a group of disciples and he said this, Luke 24, 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. <laughs> Everything written about me, Jesus says to these men who don't recognize him. Or, or no, I guess the disciples, he was with the big disciples now, they do recognize him. He says, Everything written about me, Jesus says, where in the Old Testament? Everything written about me in those Old Testament books must be fulfilled. The Old Testament books written long before Jesus was born, they are all still ultimately about Christ. They, they, they point to Christ. They, they teach about Christ. The, the, the entire Old Testament ultimately foreshadows and, and leads up to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the one true hero of the Word of God. The one hero of the Word is not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not David. It's Jesus. The one true hero of the Bible is not you. It's Jesus. And therefore, man, whenever you read any chapter or book in the Old Testament, whenever you read the Old Testament, it is absolutely critical that you read it through Christocentric lenses. A Christ-centered hermeneutic in interpreting all of Scripture in light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And a lot of Christians just don't do that. A lot of Christians, when, when, when they read and study the Old Testament, re read Proverbs or, or, or read the Psalms or read through Deuteronomy, they rarely, if ever, even think about Christ. And please listen to me. That is a huge problem. Huge problem. 
Listen, if you read through the Psalms in the morning, you're meditating on the Psalms right now, but, but you're not connecting those Psalms to, to Christ, connecting all of those Psalms to, to Christ somehow, you're not reading the Psalms with the proper spectacles on your face. And there's no possible way that you will see and interpret those Psalms accurately. And that goes for the rest of the Old Testament books. Listen, do do you know who reads the Old Testament books without taking them to Christ? Do you know who does that? Jewish rabbis. Jewish rabbis have the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament books diligently, but never take them to Christ. And when you read the Old Testament like that as a believer, well, you're functioning like a Jewish rabbi. And you can then very easily fall into a ton of moralism and legalism in your Christian life. Studying the Old Testament with no Jesus, that's a huge problem, and a lot of believers do it. Man, I did it for years. And you know what that is when you read the Old Testament like that? That's really the Veggie Tales way to read the Old Testament. <laughs> Man, listen, I love Veggie Tales. I absolutely do. You invite me over, I will watch your Veggie Tales. I think we've got several of them probably in our house. Our kids watch them. Man, those things are funny, huh? Who wouldn't laugh at talking vegetables? <laughs> Bob the Tomato. Man, he's cool, that guy. Uh, but man, you know, you ever realized... That when VeggieTales does a show on some Old Testament character, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the big fish, have you ever noticed that the one thing you never ever hear in that VeggieTales show is the name Jesus? I don't think I've ever heard it. I don't think I've ever ever heard it. You hear about God, maybe? And you you learn some decent little lessons for life from the various Old Testament Bible characters, but you do not hear the name of Jesus. I still let my kids watch Veggie Tales. I'll watch it with them, but please listen to me. Have a conversation with your kids. Have a conversation with your kids. Like I've talked about it with my kids, the fact that there's no Jesus in there. And I joke with my kids, I call them moral tales. Because that's what they are. And that's okay. It's not bad to learn moral life lessons. Hey, yes, but do you realize that a Jew would be perfectly happy with the Veggie Tales movies? Just be aware of that. When you put the name Jesus in there, well, all of a sudden, they're not going to be as happy with the VeggieTales movie. I told you before about Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher uh, in England in, in the 1800s. Late in his life, one of Spurgeon's students, he asked Spurgeon to come and, and, and listen to him 
preach. And so Spurgeon did, went and listened to this young student of his preach. And afterward, the young student asked Spurgeon what he thought of, of the sermon that he had preached. And Spurgeon said, well, your sermon was very well prepared, man. It, it was very well delivered, and, and your sermon stunk. And the young man, shocked, said, why? What in the world are you talking about? And Spurgeon said, there was no Christ in your sermon. And the young man responded, well, it was an Old Testament text. There, there was, Christ was not mentioned in, in that text. And, and Spurgeon said to the man, young man, don't you know that from every town in all of England, you can find a road that leads to London. And Christ, Spurgeon said, is the London of the Bible. From every single text in the entire Bible, you can find a road that leads to Christ. I love, uh, I love this um, little kid's uh, storybook Bible we have in our homes called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, every story whispers His name. Every story in the Old Testament, every chapter somehow whispers his name. You can find a road from every story to Christ. I encourage you to practice that in your own devotions. When you're reading through the Psalms, you pause and you think, how does this teach me about Christ? How is Christ the fulfillment of this Psalm right here? You're going through Deuteronomy, do the same. Listen, you know what happens when you start to hear the whisper of, of Christ's name in the Old Testament books? <laughs> when you start to see Christ in the Old Testament books, I've experienced this. When, when, when the dots actually begin to connect in your mind and you start to see how these various Old Testament texts connect to Jesus Christ, you know what happens? Well you, well, you remember those, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself? Well, look at what happened to them. Jesus had now just vanished from their sight, and they then said this to each other, Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Did not our hearts burn when he opened up those Old Testament books and he showed us himself? Man, you start to see Christ in the Old Testament books. You hear the whisper of the name of Christ and your heart begins to burn. Your affections are touched by the word of God. And the Old Testament is no longer a legalistic yoke to you. It is something that Jesus has fulfilled. It points to Him. It glorifies Christ. Your heart burns. And you know what that is when your heart begins to burn. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit bearing witness in your heart. That's the Holy Spirit saying, yes, that's right. It's all about Christ. Yet your heart begins to burn and, and all of a sudden you, you, you know what's begun to happen right there as you're reading through the scriptures you know what's begun to happen you've begun to worship you've begun to worship Jesus and do you know what 
That experience right there of seeing Christ, your heart burning and worshiping, do you know that's how you're changed in this life? Listen, you are not changed in this life by looking at yourself. You're not changed by just staring at yourself and trying to muscle up and do better. You're not changed like that. There's no power in looking at yourself all the time. You are changed in this life by looking away from yourself. By looking at Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 As you behold with an unveiled face the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ, you are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. You are changed by seeing Christ. Gazing into the face of Christ. When you open the Old Testament Scriptures and the dots begin to connect and your heart begins to burn and you begin to worship and you're gazing at Christ, you begin to change. Sin begins to fall off of you like it never did before. The fruits of the Spirit begin to well up in you like never before. You're changed. The danger, the danger, when when we look at this book of Nehemiah, the the danger, when a book like this has some sort of hero figure in it, like like Nehemiah, it's easy to get so caught up with the little hero in the story that you miss the big hero. You read about Abraham or David or Daniel. And then you focus solely on, on those little heroes. You, you, you try to draw some lessons from, from their lives. You, you, you try to be like them. Do you realize that, that Sunday schools all over the world right now are taking little kids through the Old Testament and basically just teaching them to be like Abraham? Just follow God like Abraham. Or be like David. If you you little kids just, just have faith like David, well, you can kill your giants too. Or be like Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel, little kids. Just have courage like Daniel. Oh, and you can conquer lions too. But see, God did not put Abraham into the Bible as just an example for you. Abraham points to Christ. David points to Christ. He's the one who went like David with weakness and slayed the giant on the cross. David is a picture of Christ. Daniel is a picture of Christ. Jesus, like Daniel, went into the den of lions and conquered. And don't get me wrong. You know, we can and we should learn some simple lessons from the lives of the little heroes in the Bible. But listen, every single little hero in the Bible, they are all ultimately pointing to the one big hero. In the Bible. 
All the little heroes in the Bible, all the little heroes are really just fingers pointing to Christ. And if all you do when you read the Bible is stare at the finger, you miss the point. You miss the point entirely. And we can and we should learn some lessons from this man, Nehemiah. And this was a godly man. He did some remarkable things. But you know what you'll also see in this book? You will see some of Nehemiah's flaws. All of the little heroes in the Bible, they all have clay feet to remind us that there's only one hero. You'll see his flaws. But we could learn some great things from Nehemiah. A lot of people talk about Nehemiah's leadership skills. John White wrote an entire book on Nehemiah's leadership skills called Excellence in Leadership. John White says, what wisdom Nehemiah had, he has become my model for leadership. We can learn leadership from from Nehemiah. We can learn lots of other things from Nehemiah. But if all we do in this book is stare at the finger, we miss the point Entirely because Nehemiah points to Christ. You know this little book here, it's amazing. You read through it and the light bulbs start to go off. Man, it points to Jesus in lots of different ways. And we'll look at them over the coming weeks. Let me mention just one of them today. Just one way this book of Nehemiah points to Christ. You know one thing? that the book of Nehemiah says to us about Christ. You know what it whispers to us about Jesus Christ? Here it is, I believe. Jesus Christ is the better builder. He is the much better builder. He is the infinitely better builder than Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah does some, man, he does some cool things in this book when you read through it. Man, he heads out of the safe place in in Susa. He travels into the devastation in Israel and he labors there. He he labors hard against all odds. He he labors against all opposition there. And, And Nehemiah builds a city. He builds Jerusalem. But you know what? That which Nehemiah does here, that is just a small foreshadowing. It is just a small foretaste of a much better builder who would come right after Nehemiah. 400 years after Nehemiah built Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, He would leave His safe place. And He would enter into the devastation of this earth. And on this earth, Jesus would labor. He would labor against all odds. He would labor against all opposition. He would even be crucified by that opposition. And why did Jesus do that? Why did He do it? Here's one reason He did it. To build a city. 
to build a city. Did you realize that one of the main reasons why Jesus Christ came to earth was to build a city? Jesus Christ came to this earth to build a much better Jerusalem. Jesus didn't come to this earth to build simply a, a brick and mortar Jerusalem like Nehemiah just to just build just some rock walls and, and fix some broken gates. No, Jesus came to build a spiritual Jeru- Jerusalem. Hebrews 11 calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21 calls it the new Jerusalem. And, and what is this new Jerusalem? This heavenly Jerusalem that Jesus Christ came to earth to build? What is this new Jerusalem? You ready? The church. The church. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. The people of God. You know that old Jerusalem that that Nehemiah built? That that Jerusalem of the Old Testament, the Jerusalem of the Old Covenant, that Jerusalem was a place. And God had chosen to put His name on that place. God chose to dwell in that place. All true worship took uh, happened in that place. But Jesus came to build a better Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem that Jesus came to build, the Jerusalem of the New Testament, the Jerusalem of the New Covenant, well, the new Jerusalem is not a place. It's a people. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to build a people, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. He came to build a body of believers all over this world who would trust in and worship Him. A people, a, a, a new Jerusalem. God has now chosen to put His name on that people. The church. God now dwells in that people. The church. In the person of the Holy Spirit. And all true worship now happens in the church. The new Jerusalem. A people. Bride of Christ. The church. We can see this new Jerusalem. This church that Jesus came to build. We can see it at the end of the book of Revelation. Here it is. Once it's all finally built. The church in its glorious final form. And how do we see the church here in Revelation? A city. With perfect walls and perfect gates. Revelation 21.9 Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 
gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem, the church. The church is a city. A city. There it is. Revelation 21, 1. Same idea. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is consummation of all things. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You know, the Bible refers to the body of Christ, the church, using lots of different language. And one of the ways the Bible refers to the church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the new Jerusalem. And you know the high point of that whole thing when when it all happens in the book of Revelation? You you know the high point of the whole thing is not just that the city was built. No, it's the worship that comes after the city was built. When people from all tribes and languages and people and nations worship the Lamb and God the Father around the throne. People of God finally in a perfectly safe place called the new heavens and earth, worshiping Jesus forever. Jesus came. He came to build a better city. Nehemiah built the old Jerusalem, but Jesus is now building the new Jerusalem. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is now doing that. Jesus already died and He rose again in order that we might be forgiven. And, and the second you truly trust in, in Christ in your life and begin to follow Christ, well, guess what? Jesus just brought you out of exile. Your exile in sin and death. And Jesus has now built you into His city. The church, the new Jerusalem. You're now a living stone, First Peter says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Ephesians 2 says, with Christ as your cornerstone. Everything Nehemiah does here in this book, in building the old Jerusalem, is just a small foreshadowing, a small foretaste of a much better builder to come who would build a much better Jerusalem. Jesus is the better builder. And we'll look more at that in weeks to come. Look at other ways Nehemiah points to Christ. But that's my primary prayer, is that as we go through Nehemiah, we would see Jesus in this book, and that our hearts would burn, and we would begin to worship Jesus. You know what my second prayer is very, very quickly? Here it is. My prayer as we go through the book of Nehemiah is that God would stir our hearts to build with Jesus. 
You look at Nehemiah here. Nehemiah built this old Jerusalem, but he did not build it by himself. Yes, Nehemiah did the heavy lifting in building this. He led the project, but Nehemiah called other people to build with him. And that's a foreshadowing of Christ building the new Jerusalem, building his church. Jesus, when you come into the kingdom of God, you've been called by Christ. You've been called by Christ to labor, to help build the church of Christ. You've been called by Christ to help expand the church by bringing more people into the church. And you've been called by Christ to strengthen the church by strengthening those who are already inside of the church. J.I. Packer says that when you become a Christian, you receive two callings. One, you receive a call to Christ. Two, you receive a call to task. You are called to stand with Christ and work to build the church of Christ. And if that's you, if you're a Christian, you're called to do that.